0: Son, precious son.
1: Hey, did you get those two birthday cards I sent you through the phone with the music? I did. Thank you so much. You hear the music? I heard the music. It was beautiful music. <laughs> oh, I, wanted to tell, I made those up. I wanted to tell you how much I love you, Mom. Oh, thank you, darling. That's just wonderful. I feel your love. <laughs> I do. All right. I I've I've been feeling it lately. <laughs> All right. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I thought a lot about your birth, you know? All right. That's cool. Well, I appreciate you uh, uh, birthing, birthing my face. Yes, my darling. You were a huge baby, nine pounds, and I'm just a, I'm a very, very small-boned little lady.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, well, thank you. Welcome back to the Lime Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. And that was a uh, conversation between my mother and myself. It was my birthday over the weekend, and my mom always loves to tell me about my exit out of her vaginal canal around my birthday, so I figured I would record that knowing it was going to (laughs) happen and use that as a friendly reminder to tell those around you, your family, your friends, everybody how much you care about them, how much you love them, even if you think that they know, it will make you feel better, make them feel better, and uh, it's just important, we gotta do that thing. Today in this conversation, I got to talk to the legend, uh, Dr. Tim Noakes. I believe you call him Dr. Professor Tim Noakes for sure. Um, He is a legend in the world of exercise physiology. He is uh, born and raised in Zimbabwe and then uh, moved to South Africa. And is now is a emeritus professor at the University of Cape Town. Author, uh, uh, pfft, activist. Uh, he was one of the main people to bring out the uh, information in relation to overhydrating and marathons. Uh, he was the creator of the, the central governor theory, which is something I've been yapping about for years, and not realize it was even nooks, and uh, we get into all, of, all that during the conversation. Um, lots of good stuff in this conversation. He's also a proponent of low carbohydrates
0: and high fat intake, which intrigues me. And eventually I realized it has to be the brain. Mm. And what the brain does is it determines how much muscle you, act, you can activate. So even when you are finishing your marathon and you're trying to sprint the last 100 meters, your body is only allowing you to activate about 50% of the muscles in the lower limb. So thank you so much for
1: tuning in. Please, and thank you. Check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N-therapy.com. That is A-L-I-G-N-therapy.com. On there, you will find hundreds of free videos on self-care and functional movement. You will find this self-care kit, which is a hollow foam roller with screw-on lids, uh, two different myofascial release, balls, heavy-duty elastic band, and door anchor, so you're able to adjust to the height of that band, decompress your joints, get your workout on, whatever you're feeling. Um, Things that are happening this week. I uh, treated myself to a weekend ayahuasca ceremony retreat. Uh, thing <laughs> and that was tremendous that was one of the best birthday presents I think I could ever ever receive um, really really beautiful experience and I would highly highly recommend people check that out. Checking out, becoming fascinated by introspection, becoming fascinated as opposed to thinking that we need to travel to, you know, Tibet or Peru or what have you. There's a lot of traveling that we can do within ourselves right now. You have the whole world inside of your little noggin there. So, or your body, exploration of movement, range of motion throughout your body, throughout your mind, and uh, just uncovering those layers of ourselves. Get in, start digging, there's a lot there. It'll take your whole lifetime to not even get through it all. So get started today. Hoorah. Oh. <sighs> Uh, thanks for comments and reviews. Five star, ideally, on iTunes. Greatly appreciate that. That is just wonderful of you. Uh, makes makes things happier in my world. Every time I see it, it is just a, a breath of fresh air. Getting to see that people are appreciating what we're doing here and the work that it takes to make this happen. Thanks for being involved. Thanks for spreading it. Uh, um, if you guys could... Maybe tell your friends about this thing, if you think it might be helpful for them. Um, greatly appreciate that. Quote of the day: I don't, I don't know who said this or, or whatever. It's something I've been kind of, kind of thinking, saying for a while. But uh, interesting people are interested people. So really digging into just your experience with observation of the world, observation of yourself. Maybe a little homework assignment that we can do is uh, if you're in a relationship with somebody or whatever, even a business partner or just a friend in general. Next time you're with them, try and notice five things that uh, is special about that person. Try and notice things that that's, that's you really appreciate about that person. And I guarantee you, you will start to see that individual in a different light. me, <coughs> You can do that with anything just start really looking at the fine details of what's happening in your reality and they say things like this increases your memory increases your overall sense of well-being of course it does by paying attention we're able to remember what we're, what we're doing and we're able to appreciate the experience all right i apologize for that that was probably longer than i should have gone um I think that might be all please and thank you utilize the Amazon portal on the right sidebar of the blog and the podcast page with your Amazon purchases. A small percentage of that purchase goes to the Align Podcast and uh, it's very helpful with supporting the show. It doesn't cost you anything at all, and you can kinda leverage some of those finances instead of going to the Amazon machine, it can drop into into our foundation here. And yeah. I think that might be it. One last thing, really quick, 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 quick. Um, With the usage of psychoactive substances or the usage of seeing a therapist or, you know, a, a body worker or what have you, I really want to make sure that it is clear that the most important thing about those experiences is to recognize them as guides and to realize that the work that you do before and after and during, for that matter, but it's the work that you put in to your experience, is that's where the value, that's where you actually are able to dig in and get some treasure out of the experience. If we are just dependent on doing things like utilizing, going to you know plant ceremonies or... You know, whatever you're into, uh, as as that's that's the cure-all, that's the end, that's the finishing point. That is complete bullshit, and that's not. That's how we develop dependencies on anything. Recognizing that the lessons and the treasure that we can pull out of these individual experiences, that is just the beginning. Then it is what you do with that information that you happen to have received by whatever guide you happen to have. found. All right. Thanks so much um enjoy the conversation with dr tim noakes i think you call him doctor i'm pretty sure if not uh professor tim noakes thank you so much
0: line podcast
1: just to give people a sense of where you're coming from like what's your what's the, the gist
0: well the gist is that i like the big picture <laughs> not the small picture yeah. and i think your job as a scientist is to do something that will be of greatest benefit to the most people yeah. Uh, rather than I could never become a scientist studying one protein in the cell. That that right. didn't interest me. I wanted to understand how the whole system worked. Yeah. And particularly at a, at a social level and at, what had importance. So if something meant a, meant a lot because a lot of people had that disease or a lot of people were doing this and they were getting into trouble, I wanted to know about that. Yeah. So I, I went into sport science because I was interested in preventive medicine. And at the time, I thought sport was the way you could make people healthy and prevent disease. Yeah. And I thought that that was much more important than being just another doctor prescribing medications for people who are chronically ill without trying to reverse the causation of that chronic ill health. Right. So that was my focus always. It was always to do something in research and science that would impact on the broader community yeah. and make them healthier and happier and live longer, etc. Yeah. So that was the focus. I, I couldn't be interested in studying tiny, tiny minutiae, which may or may not prove to be terribly important in the long term. I wanted to see the bigger picture. Yeah. And its I mean,
1: I find it. So that's the the whole focus here at Align Therapy, you know, is bringing people in. And we talk about your movement function we talk about your sleep your diet you know it's i'm i'm more you know i, I don't like the word expert so much cuz i think it's you know it puts a roof over you it's like okay yeah. you're now an expert it's like no, no no i'm just learning every day you know but a part of that learning process has been understanding like we can't just say your knee needs to function perfectly and everything's going to come together it's there's so much more to it than that one of, one of the exactly. one of the quotes you put in your book, it might be, I think it might be a quote from you. I'm not sure, but is, is God heals and doctors collect the bill for it? And I think that that's what we do. We get confused. We think that we're doing it, you know. But really, what we're doing is we happen to push a few blocks into place, or inspire them, or whatever it is, and then biology and universe and God or what have you comes in and actually makes the change. And we're like, ha ha,
0: I did it. <laughs> exactly. You know that phrase? Yeah, it's a good one. Because I was actually in Los Angeles in 1967 and 68, and I stayed with the family on an exchange program. And when I left, that was they they gave me a board, right? Uh, and that's what it said on it, right? And right. I right. It yeah. And oh, and it, it's just my favorite. It was just an amazing statement because yeah. they knew I'd I just I was going to do medicine when I came back to South Africa because I was still then I was just at high school. I was a senior at high school. Yeah. And that you, I was going to study medicine. So they said, never forget this. And <laughs> That right. was what they gave me. Right, right, take. right. It was just lovely. Yeah. You
1: know. So, so how has that been for you? Transitioning into, have you always been a generalist with your perspectives on things, or is it kind of? It seems like you almost have to start off like, I need my niche. You know, I sell, yeah. you know, cockroach umbrellas. Like that's what I do. You know, it's like, yeah. like what about? Like, how did you transition into bigger picture?
0: That's a great question. So I did medicine, and then uh, in my final year in medicine and in my internship, uh, what we call internship here in South Africa, that's your final year before you're allowed to go out and treat patients in the public. And it was during that period I realized that I, I felt medicine wasn't really doing much for, for chronic ill health. We just seemed to be patching up the problem. Yeah. And then I realized I would much be much more interested in doing the science and promoting health and getting people to be healthy. And I also realized that I couldn't read I couldn't read the textbook. I wanted to write the textbook. And at the time, yeah. we didn't know too much about sports science and sports medicine. It really was in its infancy. And so the beauty then was you could actually be an expert in everything in sports medicine or sports science. Mm. Because the field was so tiny that if you were there at the beginning, because there was so little, you could actually understand. Most of it. Today, if you come into sports science or sports medicine, it's vast. It's huge. You could never con- understand the whole field. Right. And now we've become specialists. Yeah. But I think the beauty was starting then, you could be a generalist.
1: Right. And I had
0: to be a generalist because I was coming from medicine. I had no training in sports science or in sports medicine. Yeah. And I had to train myself. So I just was interested in learning everything about everything. Yeah. And at a, su- at a kind of a superficial level. But then you get the chance to see the bigger picture and start asking the questions which are really relevant. And I'm I'm always interested in what we call the paradox, where something happens, which doesn't make sense according to what you've been taught. Mm. And so as soon as I saw, I saw two major paradoxes, and the one was a lady running an ultra marathon, the Comrades Marathon, collapsed during the race, became unconscious, and so of course everyone said, well, she's dehydrated, and turned out she hadn't; she'd drunk too much. And she was overhydrated. Yeah. And it took us a couple of years to prove that. But then that was the paradox because everyone believed that dehydration causes you to collapse during marathon running. And we proved that it wasn't. It was the opposite that if you really lose consciousness during an ultra marathon race, the probability is that you overdrank and you didn't underdrink. And that was the one. And the second one was whether oxygen limits exercise performance. And we did experiments where we went to show X. We could never find X. We could always find why. And so I said, Well, why? Why aren't we finding what everyone else says we should be finding, we aren't finding? And then I said, Because oxygen isn't the determining factor in exercise performance, it's something else. And so then we went down the route to discover that the brain was regulating exercise performance. Yeah. And again, it was simple observations. You but because I didn't have a bias, I had no I hadn't bought in. To the dehydration myth, I hadn't bought into the oxygen myth, so it was easy to drop it. But if you've been trained by people, and and actually there's the third point. I was trained by people who said you must eat carbohydrates to be healthy. And that was the last one I was able to reject because I'd been taught that carbohydrates are crucial and that if you eat fat, you will die. Mm. And so that was the most difficult one to get rid of because it was ingrained in me by these experts. My heroes had taught me that. And that was difficult. But the others, I just picked up by myself. I didn't, I hadn't any buy-in into the theories. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point. Once you are taught to believe something mm-hmm. in your training, it's very difficult to get away from, get away from it. Yeah, but what I hadn't been taught, so it was kind of easy. Yeah. But the one thing I had been taught was the one it took me 33 years to reject. Mm. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's um, a quote that I've said before is, is the reason that we travel is in order to arrive back at the place that we started and and truly understand it for the first time. You know, and I think that that's something, you know, and that's, that's what, that's what we witness with religion. That's what we witness with diet, which I think they could be analogous. You know, it's like when you, if you, if you potentially shake my belief system around what I've eaten for the last X amount of years, you have skin in the game. You know, it's like, you don't, you don't want to lose that real estate. You don't want to lose that equity that you had down on that, you know? So it's like, keep it, even if it's wrong, even if it's ignorant, even if it's, you know, whatever, it's like, no, 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 because this is going to rock my ego and rock my whole perspective on the world. That's really scary.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, what I've learned, I learned with all the things I was actually just reading through one of the journals the other night. And one of the people that I... Had argued with from the University of Tennessee about does oxygen limit exercise performance? And I mean, I think we've all moved on and realized it doesn't. You see, it's the brain's regulating exercise performance.
1: Mm.
0: Now that now, 10 years later, he still is still banging on the same old drum. Yeah. That's definitely oxygen that's limiting exercise performance. Mm. Completely unable to change. And in this country, tackling with dietitians, we can tell them all the evidence. We can show it to them saying, actually carbohydrates are what are killing us from heart disease and diabetes and there's all the evidence and can't you see it no yeah it doesn't exist it's it's astonishing how how difficult people how what great great difficulty people have to see what is so obvious yeah
1: so a question that i have is you know this is kind of a little bit like an existential question but how can we know that we can trust ourselves, you know? So it's, yeah. it's, it's like, you know, we, there's all this research into the microbiome and it's like, well, you're actually, you know, the reason that you're eating that Snickers bar is just because the, the bacteria is causing you to crave this simple sugar, what have you, you know, or the reason that you yeah. are suicidal is actually the bacteria. You know, it's like, think yeah. there was like the Twix defense or the Snickers defense or whatever, where the guy did something <laughs> crazy. It was like, it was the candy, you know? So it's <laughs> how, how, So your perspective, which I I agree with and I respect completely, is drink when you're thirsty. (laughs) 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 But is there any potential in between where we need to train ourselves to really understand
0: ourselves and what is the truth? You know, it was really interesting because this afternoon I was chatting with a guy who – had just come back from overseas, where he'd had this tragic event. Eleven of his friends, he and eleven friends went overseas. They went skiing in France. And one night, one of the guys dropped dead at the dinner table. He just dropped dead. Jesus. And so now, and then a week later, another of his friends dropped dead. He's 52. He goes to see his doctor, and his cholesterol is 8 in our units, which would probably be like 300 in in the U.S. units. And of course, the doctor tells him, well, you're going to drop dead tomorrow. So I mean, that's that's essentially the message he got from the doctor. And he's he's 52 years old. And he was mortified. And so we had a long chat, and I tried to explain to him, actually, that's not going to happen. The risk of you dropping dead is so tiny that you can essentially ignore it. But I said, let's address this cholesterol story. And we did that at great length. And he listened very carefully, and he, he knew my story, and he knew, and he'd been put on statin drugs and he'd had so much discomfort, he'd stopped them within a week. And anyway, so we carried on like this. And then he said, but how do you know, what happens if you're wrong? He asked me that question. Yeah. So I said, well, let's go back to your friend, your friends. What diet were they eating? He said, you know, I never thought about that. I said, they were eating the high carbohydrate, high glucose, high vegetable oil mm-hmm. diet. That's what they were eating. Did the doctor ever tell them that that diet might kill them? And he said, you know, I think I'm beginning to understand. Mm. So in other words, are you going to believe that the diet which has caused your friends to die is now suddenly going to become healthy for you? And he began to grasp it. Yeah. And the answer is, we don't know. We can only look at all the evidence and make our assumptions and our conclusions. Right. And, and I've made my conclusion. And again, I had the same story. Another guy who had a heart attack came to see me and he said, oh, he'd been told, to eat, he'd been advised to eat the Banting diet, which is the, the high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. And he'd then gone to his doctor and the doctor said, absolutely, under no conditions can you eat that diet because you will die. So I said to him, so tell me, what diet were you eating before you had a heart attack? <gasps> yeah, actually, you no, that's interesting. I said, were you eating a high-fat diet before you had a heart attack? And he said, no, I was eating the opposite. So I said, well, don't you think that that diet could have been the cause of the problem? not the high-fat diet that I think you should be eating. Mm. So that's the reality. We, we stick with these old ideas, and it's very difficult to change. But again, the question was was valid. How do we know we, we are true, right, or wrong? We don't. We're <laughs> okay. gonna, <some> of, <laughs> right. yeah, Much of <laughs> what gonna, you have to make, life is a guesswork. You, you have to eat. You've got to look at the literature. You've got to read it. You've got to work out and then commit. Right. And, yeah. and you have to look at what you think is, is, is the truth. Yeah. The only scientist
1: that I trust is the person that fit at the end of the night, you know, we're at the bar, we're hanging out, we're having a kombucha or whatever you drink, you know, and <laughs> the end response is, I don't, I, I don't really know. I don't, you know, because that's, that's the truth. You know, it's like, it's, you know, it's like there's, there's some quote that I, I wrote down out of your, out of your book as well that I like from Thomas Huxley is, uh, it was longer than this, I'm paraphrasing, but the, our known is finite and, and the unknown is infinite. You know, and embracing that, you know, that's when you're really, that's when you're surfing. You know, that's when you're really getting into it. But we really attach to those little specks, you know, and then it's just, we, we just, it's just dark in
0: there. See. I think the problem is, you see, what happened was along came the scientists and the doctors. And they then got the power of the, what we call the power of the anointed. Right. And then they took over control and you went to their powerful the anointed, and you were told what to do. And then we just gave up, gave over all responsibility for everything in our lives to the experts. Right. And then the experts had to say, well, we, of course, we're right.
1: Yeah.
0: And they couldn't say we're wrong because the patients expected the doctor to be correct. Yeah. And that's what we have to tell the doctors and the patients, that neither of us are the experts yeah. and that knowledge changes. And we're here to try to learn more and become so as someone said we want to become less uncertain about the truth right. we can't be absolutely certain but we're less uncertain right and that's the role of science yeah 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 i'm gonna say one, a, one, oh go on go on what, what, what's the beauty of the internet is that the power has gone to the people now and they can access the information and make their own decisions and we've uh, got to empower them and say listen unfortunately you have to make the decisions and we, it, the data are incomplete, but you have to make your decisions and you must follow that. Right. We've made too many errors. We've, yeah. In believing in ourselves, we've made so many errors right. that we have to allow the patients to make the decisions. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but
0: the patients must be fully informed. Right. They mustn't just be informed by people who have a commercial interest in the information that they're giving. Right.
1: Yeah, we move towards truth by disproving what's less true. Exactly right. right. You yeah, know? And I think
0: I said that somewhere too. Yeah, that's, that's Carl, Carl Popper. Uh, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and,
1: and you know, like my approach with working with clients is again, it's like uh, all the things that are happening here, it's just, yeah. it's, it's you allowing yourself to change. And I, you know, happen to be a medium kind of putting a flashlight at things, but we all can be our own experts. You know, we all can be our own guides, our own physical therapists, our own psychologists. We are whether we realize it or not, but it's giving people the power back. That is an insecure position for a lot of people in Western medicine. You know, there's a, there's a really valid place for Western medicine, but it's not really health. You know that's the thing. It's dishealth. Mm-hmm. It nails yeah, exactly. dishealth. It absolutely. It's yeah. amazing. But the health yeah. component, we need. Yeah. We can. We can. We can do it.
0: Yeah. Know? No. Exactly. You know. I always say because I'm people think I'm critical of medicine, and and the answer is that in acute medicine, in the management of acute conditions, modern medicine is unbelievable. And if you go back two hundred years, you wouldn't like to live two hundred years ago because all these acute conditions, the fractures and the infections and so on, which were, must have been terrifying living in those days to know that you just cut your skin and you probably will die from a disseminated infection. Right. It must have been horrific. We don't have to worry about that today. But now we have to worry about the chronic diseases. And we are useless in the management of chronic disease. And, and my point is the reason is we don't understand nutrition is so critical yeah. to, to long-term health that, and we just ignored it. And we've, we've kind of put it off for whatever reason. Yeah. And so that we're utterly ineffective in chronic disease. So if you have a chronic disease, you might as well go and see someone else other than a doctor. But if you have a, an acute condition, gosh, medicine is unbelievable and has made fantastic strides. Right. I just wish we were a little bit more honest about the fact that we're not very good in treating chronic diseases
1: so i'd like to touch on waterlogged and you know something that people i think that that's again because we've been so disillusioned by Gatorade you know and it's like it's like it's like the more of the blue drink that you put down the more power you must have you know and i think that we literally we are drowning ourselves and i think that we're and i think that we're uh, burying ourselves in food as well you know it's because we see yeah. energy on the label and therefore we reach out for the energy as opposed to reaching in. And maybe we have a lot of potential from the inside, but we become dependent on the outside and then we end up having brain fog and just being generally yeah. slow
0: at life. Is that- Exactly, exactly. I mean, for example, I, I could never understand why people would run marathons and then said, gosh, I ran badly because I got dehydrated and right. I didn't drink enough Gatorade. I mean, right. please. And right. You know, the fact that you trained for five years for this race Surely something went wrong in the training if you had a poor race. Yeah. But you couldn't think about that. You couldn't blame yourself. You had to have this simple explanation, oh, you didn't drink enough, please. You know, and why? Because industry had driven us in that direction. They'd reduced for, uh, athletic performance to one variable, whether you became dehydrated or not, or whether you took in glucose before right. or during the race. Yeah. When athletic performance is incredibly complex. right? And, and the tiny effect, that effect is so tiny. You need to look at your training first to decide what was going on and what went wrong. Yeah. But that's what became so dependent on this, this reductionist view of life. Yeah. When life is much more complex than that and we know just a little bit about that complexity and there's much more that we don't know.
1: So for folks that are running around
0: right now, the million people that are
1: you know running down some trail and they got water bottles strapped to their sides and they're holding two water bottles connected to their, to their, their uh, wrists. Uh, is there some kind of guideline that maybe we can actually follow that might make sense, or more maybe more sense? Or like, what are your what's your perception on that? Because you're you have a pretty robust history in the running
0: world. <laughs> well, I think you said it just a few minutes ago. You know, you drink to thirst. That's it. Why should humans be different from every other creature on this planet? Right. Do you teach? Do you tell these other creatures when to drink? No. Right. Their body tells them, and that's our biology. Our biology will always tell you what to do. The biology will tell you how many calories you need to eat. It's only when you start eating foods, which we had, didn't co-evolve with, that you get into trouble. Yeah. So you have to think, You know, did, did man always have access to water every five minutes? No, of course they didn't. Right. They lived near water, and then they would trek out and do what they had to do, and then at night they'd come back, and there was the water. So we know humans drink most at night when they come back and they eat their meals. That's when you sort out your dehydration. But we're designed to be dehydrated during the day, And we correct that at night. We make the final corrections. But uh, the reality is you just drink to thirst. And we know that now. The science shows it. I I predicted that in 1988, that drinking to thirst would be ideal. But now the evidence is clear. If you do laboratory experiments and you tell people to drink more than thirst or less than thirst, they underperform compared to drinking to thirst. So thirst is another mechanism that the body tells you, hold it. Things are not perfect. You need to drink a bit of water here. If you don't drink, the first thing that happens is your exercise performance goes down because the brain says, "Listen, if you aren't going to listen to me, I'm not going to allow you to exercise hard because I don't know when you're going to listen to me." Right. And if you listen to me too late, you're going to die. So I'm not going to allow you to run until you start drinking, or I'm not going to allow you to drink properly. Yeah. So, for example, if you, you know, if you go out and you haven't got water and you you're lost in the desert. You you don't drop dead. What happens is you stop exercising. Your brain says, That's it, you've got to stop. And you live for another day or so. But you can't exercise until someone came close by. Then then the brain would say, Fine, we're going to be saved. We'll allow you to go and walk the mile to where that person is. But you you are paralyzed. That's how the body works. It paralyzes you and you sit you sit there. Even though you're not yet dead, you sit there because the brain says, I'm not going to allow you to exercise until you sort out this this, this water problem, right. and that's what thirst tells you. Thirst is, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse until you become paralyzed, and then you sit down. And so you can imagine at the start of that, when you're running your marathon, you want to break two hours. It's not going to happen if you're feeling thirsty because yeah. you're going to be running a minute slower because you're thirsty. You're not going to die, but you're going to run a little bit slow. Right. So that that's the key. Or conversely, if you if you overdrink, your performance will go down as well. Yeah. Could you break down
1: what the central governor is and how that relates to running performance and
0: just life performance in general? I think that's an interesting yeah. interesting thing. Well, it, it came to me in 1996 because by then I'd realized that you don't, you don't stop exercising because the muscles become anaerobic mm. and have too much lactic acid. That model doesn't work. And that's what we call a catastrophe model. In other words, the problem has to arise and then you die. And I worked out slightly. I said, but you know, humans, very few humans die during exercise, even if they're sick. So I'd worked with heart patients for years. And we could safely have these guys exercise, even though we know they had advanced heart disease. Because it seemed to me something was holding them back. The body was telling them, hold on, it's safe to do this, but it's not safe to do that. Yeah. And then I worked out, well, people climb Mount Everest. And of course, people die on Mount Everest, but, but actually very few and they actually die on the way down, not on the way up. And I thought, well, you know, something must be protecting them that they don't actually go and reduce the blood supply to the brain to such an extent that they fall unconscious. Mm. And the best example was exercising in the heat. So of course, some people do develop heat stroke during exercise in the heat, but millions, millions every day, today millions of people have exercised and none or few have developed heat stroke. And many of them have exercised in the heat. So I worked out it it can't be the body is controlled by this catastrophic. It must model. It must be regulated in some way, and eventually I realised it has to be the brain. Mm. And what the brain does is it determines how much muscle you act you can activate. So even when you are finishing your marathon and you're trying to sprint the last hundred metres, your body is only allowing you to activate about fifty percent of the muscles in the lower limb, and you can you don't do more than that. Maybe for a short sprint you would, but At the end of the marathon, you won't do that because the brain is so clever. It says, listen, if you go faster, something's going to break down. So we don't allow you to do that. So the central governor model simply is that the brain regulates exercise performance in anticipation to make sure that you finish without dying. Mm -hmm. So if you go out and run a marathon in the desert, in the California desert, you start slowly. You don't sprint off and then die from heat stroke. No, 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 no. You go slow, slowly depending on the conditions and if it's a bit cooler then you go a bit faster but if it's hotter you go slower because the brain has worked out that if you're going to exercise for four hours today you've got to do it this pace to make sure your temperature doesn't rise to some dangerous level and it doesn't just do that for heat it does it for every part of the body yeah and so we've only studied a few of them the feedbacks to the brain that are being protected but it's very clear it's very easy to show heat is one of the biggest factors that The body is very sensitive to heat and also to oxygen delivery. So if you do experiments where you have people exercising and without telling them, you reduce the oxygen delivery to them, they slow down within 30 seconds. They slow down.
1: Mm.
0: Now, that model is an anticipatory model because something has told the brain, hold it, something's not right here. There's too little oxygen getting to the brain. You must slow down. It doesn't say, gosh, you know, this is, we're racing. We've got to keep going. And we go until the oxygen in the brain is gone and you're dead. That's not the way the brain works. The brain is selfish and it's there to make sure you get to the finish safely. So that's the central governor model that the the brain is monitoring your entire body all the time. And it's making sure that everything is working perfectly so that you can finish the event that you want to. And it uses the sensations of fatigue to control your performance. So you never go harder because... Sorry, you don't go harder because you're feeling the sensation of fatigue. And what you interpret then is, gosh, my body's falling apart and I can't go any faster. Well, that's actually not true. The body's doing very well, thank you very much. But it's cause it's this is the control to make sure you don't overdo it. Right. Yeah,
1: and, and it's, it's beautiful how every system that I have been observing in relation to my body and my life is analog to every other system. You know, and so it's like, wow! It's like if you're into muscle contractility and or you know, like flexibility and such, it's the same system. It's the same language. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, it's you actually have the nervous system, which is kind of like a kind, tender mother that she just doesn't want you to hurt your joint. You know, she knows you do have that range of motion. You can find it. She just doesn't trust you yet. Yeah. You know, so she ends up putting you in the little playpen, keeping you from the big, wide world that is your potential. You know, exactly. It's, it's <laughs>
0: exactly. you know I was I mean everyone knows this. If you hurt your joints in in say in football, American football, you immediately become paralysed. You cannot move that joint. Mm. And there was an experiment done just to make sure about that. They injected saline into a part of the knee joint, which made produce pain. The muscle contraction just stopped immediately. You couldn't recruit the muscles, right. showing the brain had already picked up that there was a problem in the knee where you'd put in the fluid. Yeah. And it said, that's it. We're not going to move this joint because it's dangerous. And that happens instantaneously. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how powerful the controls are.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and you can dream it and want it to happen, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. The, the brain is far too powerful for that. And then... The
1: other, you know, that leads into a little bit more potential esoteric direction of, you know, so the brain is in control, you know, but maybe, maybe, maybe I am able to reverse and maybe I can pull the strings on the puppeteer, you know, or what, whatever, analogy, you know, it's like, maybe there's a way that I can go in and start working with my own system. So as opposed to me just being the little toddler that's being taken care of, maybe we can have a congruent relationship and I can really be at truth with what my potential is, you know, as you have any, does that make It seems like it does make sense from yeah, your no, expression. How do we I mean, do that's that? <laughs> yeah. that?
0: That's why you train and why you right. work on your mind and so you can achieve that. Right. And, and, and we try to tell people that fatigue is just an excuse. You know, you don't have to listen to fatigue. It's there <laughs> to protect you. So please don't come and tell me you got tired because if you did, that's fine. Yes, you were tired, but otherwise not. Okay. So, on the, and then you have to work on all the psychological issues you have that prevent you believing that you can do something. Right. And, of course, we're always constrained by our physiology. So I cannot go and run a two-hour marathon because my biology is not there. Mm. But there are many, let's say, two-hour 30 marathon runners who never run 2 hours 30 because they don't believe they can actually do it or it's not important enough. Yeah. And so that's the key. You've got to understand that you tell your mind what you can achieve and, that, and you set the goals. You may do it subconsciously, but you set the goals. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah exactly. And some of you reference William Sheldon, which is a fellow that uh, he was one of the original guys that started connecting your uh, body type to your personality type. Which that's like, I, I live there. Like, that's where I everywhere, every, every time I see anybody, I'm always drawing up these ridiculous stories. Usually, I'm sure they're completely off. You know, but but I still think it's fascinating. It makes life more interesting, you know, to really start to see like, wow, like this physical tissue that we're living in is a a physical manifestation of how we're feeling. You know, you can't be depressed without collapsing. You just can't do it. Exactly. Exactly. Is is there anything that you kind of utilize in that world to kind of help with athletes or help with yourself or kind of to just deepen your understanding of how to get better in relation to, to that? Does that sound crazy?
0: <laughs> uh, well, I think people express their belief systems in the way they carry themselves, particularly in sport. Yeah. And so, you know, the elite, the great, great sportsmen are picking that up. I mean, there's no one more than your quarterbacks in American football picking up and reading the opposition and American football coaches reading the opposition and knowing when that, that team is quitting and so on. So those are... I think the great athletes and the great coaches pick it up. They know instinctively yeah. that this guy is not going to perform now because of what what I can see and the way he's acting. Right. So we have to teach people that not to pre- express themselves in that way. Yeah. And that's of course very difficult, but also to tell them that if you if you see your opposition doing that, well, you know that the game's over. Yeah.
1: How is that something that you have? Worked with in your in yourself at all as far as working with your working with your life and your reality via your your body.
0: Unfortunately, I I learned these things long far too late in my life. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah, like most people, or never for most people, you know. I,
0: I could teach others about it. Right. And and so I have one I, one of my great talks is on self belief and how all these great athletes who believed in themselves or they had a coach who believed in them. And the key was the coach had a greater belief in the athlete than the athlete had in himself or herself. And that's often the case. Yeah. And I use the famous case of Jim Ryan, the, who was my great hero in the 1960s, the American runner from Kansas, who starts running at the age of 13. And he's a bit of a layabout, and he's actually he's a really bad runner. But within a few months, he starts to perform well. And at the age of 15, his coach calls him in and says, listen, you can run a four-minute mile. And he says, Coach, you're mad. And eventually, of course, two years later, he does it. And uh, he, he would never have done it if the coach hadn't said, Listen, I have absolute faith in you, yeah. that you can be the first high school boy in the whole world to run a four-minute mile. Awesome. And, of course, the coach was absolutely right because this was one guy who could do it yeah. and did it. Yeah. But uh, the, the belief systems, and there's so many great examples of of athletes who who will tell you, I knew this was my day. And then I went out. Of course, that's easy to say once you've done it. Yeah. But I've, I've, we've worked with teams now and worked on just on self-belief. And the responses are dramatic. It's yeah. astonishing. What you can achieve by telling people that this is what the outcome is going to be. And you just have to believe it. Yeah. And if you believe it, this is what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, and that yeah. comes back to the same way we started with the Malcolm Gladwell stuff. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell. I hope I'm not misquoting that. You know, but if you, if you believe that you are, you are the shit... Yeah. You know, you walk around like that, you open your chest up, you open your neck up, you stand up a little straighter, you might run a little bit more efficiently, just because you believe it, you know, so, you know, it's just figuring out how to tap into that. That's the thing that I see. It's like, you know, I see so many people are kind of zombies, and they just don't realize it, you know, and I'm my own version of like, my potential isn't fully expressed, I'm sure, you know, but it's like, it's just uncovering those layers that really... It's tricky, tricky business. The other thing that's, that's one, go, go on.
0: One of the Slavikas great marathon runners, a chap called Henrik Ramala, he won the New York City Marathon. Then the next year, he came second by about six inches mm. to Paul Turgat, who's one of the greatest runners of all time. And then the third year, he came third. So he had an amazing performance. And he's actually a lawyer. And and he wrote this wonderful statement to the fact that you have to believe you're going to win. He said, "If I want to win New York City, I have to tell myself every day, every minute, I'm going to win this race." Yeah. And during the race, he's got to keep saying, "I'm going to win this race. I'm better than these athletes. I'm going to win it." Yeah. And he says you have to win it a thousand times in your head before you actually win it once on the, in the in the performance. Yeah. And you see that. So that yeah. Yeah. You it's s- so important. And 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 I you know I didn't know that. 20, yeah. 30 years ago. I had no idea that they were so important. Yeah. Of course, it's to American football coaches, I mean, that's what they believe and that's what they teach, the great ones. And and I, I must just make the point that that the level of coaching in the United States is so unbelievably good. Right. It's it's not touched in, in, I don't know, in any other country, maybe Australia, small country, uh, a lot of effort, but the level of coaching in the United States is astonishing. Yeah. yeah.
1: You see that with almost any, maybe not almost. The ones that I've I've read about or witnessed or whatever, folks that are highly successful in whatever it may be, athletes or you know they're a rapper. They came from the bottom now they're at the top. You know, it's like they were so sure about it. The visualization was it was so tangible. It was as though it already happened. You know, and exactly. that's the big thing. That takes a lot of self-belief to be able to have yeah. that tangible visualization where you're already there. You're just literally watching the steps to arrive. Yeah.
0: You know, yeah. it's like that's exactly.
1: it's Something yeah. something that I, I wanted to I wanted to, to riff about a bit with you is another another thing you mentioned is a, a Nietzsche quote in the book, which is don't give credence to thoughts while sitting down. <laughs> you know, and I think that that's a really interesting point as well of the the level of integration that we can derive from moving our body, the integration that we can get in our brain as well and our whole nervous system. You know, yeah. it, it's like you, you see it's like the brain on drugs, the brain on sitting versus the brain on moving around, brain on dancing. It's a completely different picture, you know, and your yes. ideas end up becoming more creative. Now, do you Absolutely. have any thoughts on, on that or
0: uh, yeah, you know, I know one of my great uh, mentors at Chapel, George Sheehan, who wrote these fabulous books from Red Bank, New Jersey, and he wrote on the psychology of running and and, and the philosophy of running, I should say, perhaps. And they were just astonishing books. Yeah. And he said, you know, you, you, we really should run with notebooks because that's when we get our best thoughts. That's what I do. <laughs> uh, I, you know, when I run, it's, it's a conversation. I just start this conversation with myself and yeah. I don't know where it's going to go. Right. And then I get these insights and, you know, I had an insight the other day when, when someone was criticizing, had criticized, written a very strong article criticizing me. And, and I suddenly, as I came up the hill, I said, he's not criticizing you. He's criticizing himself.
1: Hmm.
0: Everything he has written there is a criticism of his own failings. Hmm. And he's, and he's used you as the example, because it's easier to criticize you than to criticize himself.
1: Hmm. And
0: I, I don't know, then I spoke to my wife and said, Well, yeah, maybe, but she wasn't convinced. But but I saw it as clear as day. Right. That that was that was what had happened. I mean, that's a that's a kind of a negative example, but no, I bad. suspect that I worked out all the central governor theory when I was running. Yeah. And and that came to me and you never know where the conversation is going when you're running. It just can go anywhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's I, I see that often if I see people with um you know, say whatever, say their, their, their posture or their structure is, is wacky, you know, I end up having a lot of, um, I don't want to use the word judgment, but it's probably judgment. You know yeah. you could call it that and what that is is really just a reflection back to insecurity with myself. you know it's it's all the same battles that I'm dealing with in my own self that I've been working hard to do you know but call it maybe I'm running away from it maybe I'm just, maybe it's maybe it's not running away maybe it's running into my myself you know however you want to think of it you know but <laughs> those those are the things that we really end up becoming the most insecure by are the things that we can see and feel and taste inside of ourselves. <laughs> you know, I I
0: Fully agree with you on that one. Yes,
1: Yeah. yeah. So another thing that I find interesting with with the running point is is uh, and we we can wrap up soon. I know that you got you got to eat, and I don't want to I don't want to take your <laughs> take your your dinner time. Uh, but just something I think is, is valuable for people is to think about these opportunities of running or whatever meditation it may be yeah. as opportunities to spend time with you and yourself. You know, and that's the thing that we miss. And I think there's a huge, huge impact on our biology and on our, you know, our potential pathologies that rise up is a disconnect. You know, you could call it cognitive dissonance or what have you. A disconnect between our truest, you know, us and what we think we're supposed to do. And some people are so far out of bounds with what is really like your best that – I think it creates a lot of friction. I think those times of really reflection, I think they can be it's bigger than just meditation, you know, the word.
0: Yeah, it is. It is, yeah. You know, that's why I love marathon running and and probably getting back to my favorite race of all time was the the Comrades Marathon, which is this fifty six mile race and it goes up and down the hills. It's 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 a horrendous race. Yeah. In South Africa, and it's it's as big in South Africa as the Super Bowl is in the United States. It is the sporting event. Mm. And it's shown nationally on television for, 20, for 11 hours. And um, the first time I ran it, you get to the point where you just, you realize finally it's you against this monster. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. And you just have to answer the questions. And it really relentlessly throws these questions at you. Are you good enough for this? Right. Will you continue to run? Will you finish this race? And it, it just, those are the questions and they come for three to four hours and you have to keep answering them step by step by step. Yeah. And when you finish, you cry. You break down and cry because you realize something about yourself that you have a resilience and a determination that you didn't understand. You never believed that you had it. And, mm. and that's so empowering. And I think when I finished that race, I said, okay, that's it. I can, whatever I have to do, I can do it. Yeah. Because I achieved this, which to me had considered impossible. Yeah. And I achieved what was impossible. Therefore, I can do more on other things. Right.
1: Yeah. And right. so I
0: think that, that's the reality. It, puts, it turns you into yourself and you have to answer the questions. There's no one else who can answer them for you. And I think that's really the appeal of, of running in the long term is that you get to face yourself and you find what you're good at and what you aren't good at and you have to accept that with humility and, and move on. And that's that's why most many, many runners are very humble people because they're faced up to their reality. Mm. And they know exactly who they are and who they aren't. Mm. And they're happy to accept that. Mm
1: love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, dang, damn it. We should, you're hungry. We got to go. So where, <laughs> do people, where, do, where do people find you? I'm, it was really, really fun to get to chat with you, man. I've been, it was great. I like your work. Yeah, Appreciate it. Yeah. How do people find out more?
0: Uh, I've, I've, I've retired now from teaching, academic teaching, and I'm spending my time trying to change the eating behaviors of the whole world, starting in South Africa. And so we formed a foundation called the the Noakes Foundation. That's my surname, the Noakes Foundation. And people can start to connect through with me through that. Uh, But I'm on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is at Prof Tim Noakes. And I tweet a lot every day. And it's all about the science of of nutrition. And it's going to become more running now because I'm starting to rewrite the law of running for the fifth time. I am really literally started a few weeks ago. and. I'm really looking forward to completely revising the book. And and I, I hope it's not the final time I revise it, but it's going to be a very different book than the book that was published 15 years ago.
1: Awesome.
0: And I I know exactly how to make it a better book. And I, by the way, I, I'm very proud to say it's ranked the ninth greatest book ever in running. Nice. So my job is to revise it and make it get even higher up on the list of of iconic running books.
1: Awesome. So
0: that's what I'm going to be doing in the next two years, converting the world to... To a higher fat diet, less carbohydrates, and and finishing off lower running for the fifth time.
1: Can I ask you a really quick question in relation to fat? I promise it's not gonna be well, maybe I don't know, you if you take it down a rabbit hole, but you don't need to. The ingestion of a high amount of say butter, you know, organic, yeah. grass fed, you know, that's there's a lot of fear around things like that you know, so uh, like saturated fat and such. Do you have any kind of sense of like, what is too much? How, is there a point really, where it's
0: like... Yeah, no, you'll never eat too much because your body, your brain will tell you stop. It's like you, normally you won't drink too much because your brain will tell you that's enough. And that's the beauty of fat because it's it's sorry, it satiates you so quickly mm. that you eat relatively little of it. And so although we call this a high fat diet, actually it's not many people who cut their calorie consumption by 40% because they're now not addicted to carbohydrates. You must understand carbohydrates drive us to eat too much. They, they stimulate us to become addicted to the foods and we overeat. Yeah. And once you take the carbohydrates out or limit the carbohydrates and particularly limit sugar, you eat so much less that in fact your fat intake may be exactly the same. But it's just because you cut so much from the carbohydrates that the, it now looks like it's a high fat diet because fat's providing a greater percentage of the energy. But in fact, the absolute amount of fat you're eating may be no different than it was before. It's just that you didn't recognize, sorry, not you, but we don't recognize how much fat is in some of the processed foods that we're eating. Right. But when you get it naturally and without carbohydrates, you eat the exact amount that you need and not in excess. But if you're eating, say,
1: you're eating, you know, two sticks of butter a day.
0: You know, just for the for the heck of it, which
1: I've experimented, not not just like two say but yeah, yeah I mean, I've probably eaten two sticks of butter in a day for sure, uh, and just to see how I've how I felt, and I'm like, yeah. I I feel pretty good, I feel pretty fine, yeah. <laughs> and I wonder if there's some potential thing that's happening at a deeper level that maybe I'm not, I I wasn't witnessing, you know. Now I've cut it back, okay. but I guess you know what I'm Where do you, you force yourself?
0: Yeah, the answer is you'd normally you'd have to force yourself to eat that amount. Most people would. Yeah, you know, I could eat uh, two hundred. You know maybe hundred grams of of butter a day. I mean that would be a lot sure that but anyway, you know you're not two hundred or five hundred grams, not not a pound or two, right. but my point is the following: we know so little about nutrition, mm. for example, I've just come back from the bush in South Africa watching the animals, and you have to ask the question, how does this huge animal called the giraffe? It eats one plant, acacia plant acacia. that's what it lives on, right. it just eats acacia plant. Now, if you took that acacia plant and analyzed it, you'd say this is a nutrient deficient diet. Yeah. And then we say, okay, we must give it a balanced diet and we try to give it other stuff, it will die. Yeah. There's a famous case that rhino- there are two types of rhinoceros in South Africa. There's a black and a white. And they, the black one has a different mouth and that's why it's called it a black rhino. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a browser, it eats the branches of the trees. And the white rhino is a grazer and it eats grass. In America, they suddenly found that all the rhinoceroses were dying. Why? Because they had black rhinoceroses, and they were feeding them grass, right. and they all died of over over consumption. Sorry, over layering of liver. Oh, sorry, of iron in the liver. Hmm. A particular disease called hemochromatosis, which is a you know we recognize it in humans. So because we took these animals and we stopped them browsing on trees and things and made them eat grass, they died of an iron overload. Mm -hmm. Now, you explain to me why that happened. No one knows. But it's got something to do with the bacteria in the gut changed. And as soon as that changed, they died. And because people didn't understand, a rhinoceros actually there are two types, and they eat totally different food. My point is the following. And and you take polar bears. You asked about fat. Polar bears will choose just to eat fat. That's all they'll eat. Mm -hmm. They won't eat the meat. If there's lots of fat around, that's all they eat. Mm -hmm. So how can this active mammal just eat fat and the answer is again bacteria in the gut are doing things that we don't have we don't have the first clue about so is it possible a human could live on butter i don't know but it's not impossible yeah if they if they had the gut bacteria that could synthesize everything else that wasn't in butter they maybe they could survive and that's the point we don't know what's happening to the bacteria and you know just another veterinary scientists are taught that herbivores that have this huge gut and then they ferment the grasses and things, they also digest the bacteria that I eat that are fermenting the grass. They actually digest those bacteria and use the bacteria as fuel and building blocks. Mm. So that, that's how complex nutrition is. And we don't, we don't have a clue. We really don't have a clue what humans really need to eat. Because we don't know what the gut contribution is, what the bacterial contribution is. Yeah. And until we know that, we can't say you couldn't live on butter. Maybe you could. Yeah. I don't think it would be a great idea. But <laughs> yeah. I've, I met a guy who, who lives, eats raw meat. That's all he eats. Mm-hmm. Now, we know there's not all the nutrients you need to survive on raw meat. But he's doing pretty well. Conversely, the vegetarians. And we say a vegetarian diet is not a complete diet. Yeah. But there are vegetarians who do extremely well on, on a vegetarian diet. So, so we really don't know the answer and the key is that it's the bacteria you've got they must be playing a key role in in determining our health yeah
1: yeah we think that the we think that the nutrients stop at the at the you know, the probar package you know like that's that's what it is I read the back that's exactly what it is we don't realize yeah. is there's another factory inside of us and the compounds that it creates yeah. I'm exactly. curious to learn more. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome man well cool well thank you so much that was really really super great My to get to chat with you man I really appreciate it and uh, hopefully if you ever make out to the northwest come check me out and yes. hopefully make it to South Africa I don't know when but at some point indeed cool see you man thank you
0: online podcast
1: thank you so much for tuning into the podcast I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes they determine the ranking and the visibility of the show and they make me smile so I look forward to reading those guys be sure to check out the website aligntherapy.com that's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com on there you can find my blog you can find this podcast more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show you can find hundreds of absolutely free Free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body as well. Be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist, and a massage therapist, all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye.